Welcome to Wednesday Night at Faith Assembly, featuring the ministry of Senior Pastor Phil Goss. We're glad you've joined us. We're going through the book of Esther, and we're going to finish it tonight. We're going to go through three chapters. Of course, one of the chapters is three verses, so that'll make that pretty easy. But the last two chapters, chapters eight and nine, are really connected, so it's really difficult to separate them. So again, let me just remind you of what's happened up to this point. Chapter one, the queen refuses the king's request, and so the queen is moved out. Chapter two, a new queen is found. Her name is Esther. Chapter three, Haman gets the king to sign the document that states all the Jews in the providences can be killed on a certain date. Chapter four, Mordecai tells Esther, look, you've got to do something. You need to go stand in their behalf. You need to be willing to do this. You know, this is your moment. You've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Chapter five, Esther approaches the king hesitantly. Haman has, uh, prepares a sharp pole so that Mordecai can be killed and done away with because he just ticks Haman off. Chapter six, Mordecai is honored. Haman is disgraced. Chapter seven last week, Haman is exposed and killed. So now we're at chapter eight. Chapter eight, Mordecai is put in charge of Haman's property. That's a good deal. You know, he, he's killed, so the property goes to Esther. Haman is, uh, Mordecai gets to be in charge of it. Notice what it says. On that same day, King Exus gave the property of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Mordecai was brought before the king. Esther told the king how they were related. So that finally he gets the picture and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's property. And so that's settled. Next, Esther pleads for protection. Now you'll notice I'm giving you the verses, but I'm not going to read all of them. We'd be here forever, or that's all we'd end up doing for the whole time. I just want to give you the highlights so you get a picture of what's going on. And so Esther now, okay, King Haman's dead, but the problem's not solved. There's still an issue. And so she goes before the king, falling down at his feet, begging him with tears to stop the evil plot devised by Haman against the Jews. Can, can you stop him? The edict is still there. Verse 8, go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name, telling them whatever you want, and seal it with the king's signet ring. In other words, okay, it's there, you do what you want to do. Sky's the limit. Remember I told you I'd give you anything up to half the kingdom? Still at work here. But remember that whatever has already been written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can't be revoked. In other words, it's been put into place. We can't change it. You do what you want, but understand that's going to happen. So Esther's asking him to help her, and that's what happens. So then a new decree is proclaimed. Esther comes up with an idea. So the king's decree gave the Jews in every city to unite to defend their lives. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate. That's pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? Kill, slaughter, and annihilate. Boy, that's anyone of any nationality or providence who might attack them or their children 
or their wives or who would maybe take their property and they can take their property. And so the day chosen for this event throughout all the providences of King Exodus was March the 7th of the next year. What other decree was to happen on March the 7th of that year? All the Jews were to be killed. So Esther says, okay, we can't do away with that decree. We have to live with it. So what we'll do is we'll just show another decree alongside of it. And what we'll say is, just as you have the permission to kill the Jews, now the Jews have the permission to kill you. Battle royale. So everybody's on edge. And this has gone throughout the land. And, you know, so the Jews get the message of this. And they declare a public festival. Man, this is great. Okay, we've got, we can stand up. We can fight. We don't have to just cower around. In other words, when they come to kill us, we can fight back and we can kill them. And so the Jews are very happy about this. And they declare a festival. He left the king's presence. He's wearing the royal robe of blue and white and the great crown of gold and an outer cloak of fine linen and purple. And the people of Susa celebrated the new decree. And the Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere. In every providence and city, Wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday. (laughs) That's kind of ironic, isn't it? Oh boy, we get to kill everybody. Let's celebrate. Everybody's going to be trying to kill us. Let's celebrate. Many of the people of the land became Jews themselves, where they learned what the Jews might do to them. Let's switch sides here. Things don't look so good. Maybe we should change our minds. And so they begin to rally around. That's chapter 8. We now move into chapter 9. Chapter 9, Mordecai has been promoted. We find out that no longer is he just taking care of Esther. No longer is he in some far out position, you know, away doing the king's business. Now we see where on March the 7th, two decrees of the king were put into effect. And on that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. And it was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. And the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king providence and attacked anyone who tried to harm them. And no one could make a stand against them for everyone was afraid of them. And all the nobles of the providences and the highest officials and the governors and the royal offenses helped the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For he had been promoted in the king's palace And his fame spread throughout all the providences as he became more and more powerful. So, because of his reputation, because of his influence, this man who quietly was behind the scenes all throughout the story suddenly now is in the forefront. And suddenly now he is the man that everyone looks to and he is the one who declares what can happen and he rallies the troops and what was supposed to be a rout and all the Jews are killed, now finally the tables are turned and things are different now because now he has a place of influence. 
So there's death in all the providences. Death in all the providences. Verse 5. So the Jews went ahead on the appointed day and struck down their enemies with the sword. They killed and annihilated their enemies and did as they pleased with those who hated them. So in other words, the other people are on the defense all of a sudden. The other side is now suddenly not in charge. They're not the ones. They're the ones running for their lives. Verse 11, that very day when the king was informed of the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa. Susa is where the king's at. Susa is the providence. It's home. It's the place where the kingdom is ruled from. He called for Queen Esther. The Jews have killed 500 men in the fortress of Susa alone as well as Haman's 10 sons. So Haman's whole family is wiped out. If they had done that here, what's happened in the rest of the places? What's the rest of the nation look like? But what more do you want? It's granted to you, are you done Esther? Esther, is there anything else? Do you need something? Tell me, I'll do it for you. Are we satisfied? Are you happy? Have you gotten what, uh, what I wanted from you? And Esther responded, this nice, quiet little gal who was afraid to approach the king comes back and says, let's do it again tomorrow. Let's have another day of killing. That's what it says, Right? Let the bodies of Haman's ten son be impaled on a pole. Let everybody look and see what happens to people who do this. Verse 16, meanwhile, the other Jews throughout the king's providence had gathered together to defend their lives. They gained relief from all their enemies, killing 75,000 of those who hated them. But they didn't take the plunder. The Jews at Sousa killed their enemies on March 7th and again on March 8th, then rested on March 9th, making their day of feasting and gladness. So in other words, one day of killing in their providence was the one day, the next day, everybody, hey, let's celebrate, we won. Sousa, another day, celebrate, we won. Verse 19, so this day, Rural Jews living in remote villages celebrated an annual festival and holiday on the appointed day in late winter. And when they rejoiced and sent gifts and food to each other. So 75,000, a lot of people killed. The Jews stood up who were supposed to be completely wiped out. Now suddenly are victorious. And now suddenly everybody's afraid of them. And now suddenly they're in charge. No question? Do we have a question? We have one? We have one. Okay. Am I here? Yep, here I am. Uh, one question. Wasn't the king afraid they would kill his own family? No, because they were just out after the people who were against them. The king was innocent when this decree had been issued because Haman never told him who this group was that he was going to kill. He, he just said, Haman, go do what you want to do. He wasn't aware, first of all, that it was the Jews. Second of all, at the time, he wasn't aware Esther was a Jew. 
And so it wasn't something that he, yeah, we hate the Jews, get them out of here. That wasn't his mentality. Plus, he's married to one. So Haman was the instigator in this, not the king. Because when the king, remember, a few chapters, finds out of what Haman's plot was and who it was against, he was ticked off, wasn't he? He was upset. But he had issued a law, and he couldn't stop it. It was in place. There was nothing he could do to prevent it. He had already signed off on it. It was already done. All right? The festival of Purim. By the way, a lot of Jews still celebrate this today. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to Jews near and far throughout all the providences, calling on them to celebrate an annual festival on these two days. He told them to celebrate these days with feasting, gladness, giving gifts of food to each other, and presents to the poor. And this would commemorate a time when the Jews gained relief from their enemies, when their sorrow was turned into gladness and their mourning was turned into joy. Now that kind of sounds like a verse we're familiar with, isn't it? One day sorrow is turned into gladness, isn't it? One day mourning is turned into joy. So the Jews accepted his proposal, adopted this annual custom. And Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted to crush and destroy them the date was determined by casting lots. Remember, Haman got it signed, got the law signed. Well, how do we decide which day it is? Well, let's cast dots. Let's roll the dice. Let's just see what comes up. And so that's how it was determined of what date has been there. And the lots were called Purim. And when Esther came before the king, he issued a decree causing Haman's evil plot to backfire and Haman and his sons were impaled on a sharpened pole. And that is why the celebration is called Purim because it's the ancient word for casting lots. So because of Mordecai's letter and because of what they had experienced, the Jews throughout the realm agreed to inaugurate this tradition and to pass it on to their descendants and to all who became Jews. And they declared they would never fail to celebrate these two prescribed days at the appointed time each year. Verse 32, so the command of Esther confirmed the practice of Purim and that was written down in the records. There it is, last chapter. Mordecai is the prime minister. One of the shortest chapters in the Bible, three verses. The king imposed a tribute throughout his empire, even to the distance. <laughs> it's funny, they're all at war killing each other when it's all done. Well, let's tax everybody. Get some more money. And his great achievements and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted are recorded in the book of history and the kings of Media and Persia. Folks, this is not a made-up story. This is an historical fact. This is not something that the Bible just declares. This is something history books should record. It's history. Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister. 
with authority next to that of the king himself. And he was very great among the Jews who held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all their descendants. Great book. Great book. So just let me make some observations from what we've just looked at. First of all, God is unfazed by man's laws. If you'll remember, Daniel faced a similar incident when the king Nebuchadnezzar made another edict that whoever didn't bow, remember, be thrown to the lions, and it was a law of the Medes and the Persians. You can't change it. That's what happened here. Man can make all the laws he wants, but that doesn't stop God from doing what he wants to accomplish. You can look at everything in our country that's wrong, it's not going to stop God. You can look at everything man tries to put up to guard against what's going on. It's not going to stop God. And where man thinks, I've succeeded, no. God still rules supreme. You do what you want to do. It doesn't phase him one bit. He will accomplish his plans and his purpose no matter what. No matter what. And you and I can take confidence in that, can't we? It might look bleak. It might seem like, wow, all this stuff and all these rules and all, how do we, God's always got a way. Doesn't stop God one bit. God often allows unthinkable circumstances to come into our lives. I think one of the biggest problems a lot of people have with the Old Testament is all the gore that's there, all the struggles that's there all the suffering that's there. Man suffers. Many times at our own hands. Many times because of our disobedience. And in the New Testament, the Bible tells us, don't be surprised when you go through hard times. Don't be surprised and shocked when you suffer. Suffering is a part of life. We all have suffered, and we're not done. But yet we all feel like God shouldn't allow that, don't we? We all think he should stop it. But yet sin has entered into this world, and because sin is present, suffering is present. Thus, how damaging sin is. It's much worse than you and I want to admit. And so we have to understand that God allows things to come into our lives that you and I just kind of look at and go, God, how could you? God, why are you doing this? God, why is this happening? And yet you see that because of us being alive and the struggles that these bodies go through and the struggles that we have in our lives with our issues, suffering is a part of what we have to deal with on a regular basis. And God allows it. Sin has entered. Life is hard. And God allows things to go on that we look at and think, oh, how could a loving God do this? God is a loving God. But we also have to understand sin is ruling today. And sin destroys and creates problems. And God takes suffering and uses it for his glory. That's something I think a lot of people wrestle with. 
but we just have to understand it. It's a part of life. Because we think sometimes, well, if I'm a Christian, I won't have any more problems. Oh, no. You'll probably have more problems. Well, if I'm a Christian, God won't let me go through anything difficult. Being a Christian doesn't exempt you from life. Being a Christian helps you get through life. Being a Christian gives you the strength to go on. Being a Christian gives you the faith to know that God's still at work. Being a Christian tells you, no, it's going to be worth it one day. And in the midst of all of that, I have to accept that's the part of life that you and I struggle with, wrestle with, but God is still faithful. And so God often allows unthinkable circumstances just to come into our lives. We have to deal with them on a regular basis. But nothing hinders God from doing what he wants to do. Good? God uses people who are unpretentious. Haman is this man, as you study this book, that's just really incredible because when you first see him, he's just always in the shadows. He's just kind of watching Esther. He kind of, you know takes care of her. He cares about her. He's t- checking up on her. He's seeing how she's doing. He doesn't promote himself. He stands where he's at, and Haman gets upset because he's there. But Mordecai has nothing to do with anything, and he just kind of goes along, is faithful to what he's called to do. He doesn't promote himself. Even with that one time when he gets promoted, putting the horse, and Haman has to declare it as he walks him through the street, when he's over and done, he just goes back to his post and just keeps doing what he's always doing. And God uses people that you and I would think he could never use. It's not the prideful people. It's not the people who think they have everything. God uses people who are common, ordinary people who trust God. Why is that? Because God wants the glory. The glory is not for us. It's for God. And when Haman gets promoted, when Haman gets it, what's he doing? He's caring for his people, God's people. Just one little side note. I don't know if you've noticed it or not. The book of Esther is kind of unique in that God is not mentioned in this book. But you see God at work. It's one of the few books in the Bible. And yet God says, look, I'll use you. I don't need you to be out front and have a stage. I'll take you where you are. If you'll just be faithful with little, I'll give you much. If you'll just be where I've called you to be and do what I've called you to do, I'll use you as you are where you are. And it's the old line, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies those he calls. And so he's not looking for people with all talent and all kinds of ability. He's just looking for people who are faithful to him. And if you'll be faithful to him, God will use you in ways you can't even imagine. That's what he does. God wants the victories in our lives to be unforgettable. They're going to celebrate this event yearly forever. We have another celebration that you and I participate in. It's called the Lord's Supper, communion. Why? Because we tend to forget. We focus on all the hard things and the bad things, and we tend to forget the good things. 
And God puts this in there. Haman establishes, Esther makes it a law and a rule. Why? Don't forget what God did for you. And we have forgetters, don't we? And so God says, look, whenever you take communion, whenever you do, remember. Remember what I've done. Remember what I've promised you. Remember how I'm going to take care of you. Remember that I'm coming for you. Remember that I've been victorious and my victory is yours. Don't forget it. And so ever so often, we just need a reminder that God has been faithful and God will be faithful and God is being faithful right now. And so, you know, throughout the Old Testament, God establishes these festivals because he said, I don't want you to forget this. I don't want you to forget this. When you get together, I want you to remember this. I want it to be a time of celebration because I want you not to forget how I've taken care of this. When the harvest season is there, celebrate because I'm the God of the harvest. You know, when the Passover comes, I'm the Passover. Remember that, celebrate it. Don't forget it. Coming to the New Testament, he does away with all of those. And he says, every time you do this, I want you to remember me. And that's good for us, isn't it? But there's other things in our lives. Yes, we've been through some hard times, but you know what? There's also been some good times. And we shouldn't forget those. Don't let the hard times overrule the good times. God has been good to us. In spite of all the difficulties of life, God has still been good to us. Focus on the good things, not all the difficult ones. God wants our victories in our lives to be unforgettable. Don't forget what he's done for you. Last one. God works for a universal effect. Everything God does is for all. It's not just for me. Everything God did in this book was for all the Jewish people, not just for a few. And sometimes we think God's doing this all just for me. He kind of is. But God works his plan. God so loved the world that he gave his son that anyone, that all who believe in him will not perish. He cares about all people everywhere. Yes, he cares about us individually, but he cares about all of us. And so it's a good reminder for us to remind ourselves, God is working out his plan for his benefit, for his purpose, and for his plans and they will be accomplished, and that involves all of us. What a loving, great God we serve. And so in this book, we see God at work. We see people being faithful and doing what God has put them to do in certain places and trusting God to help them, and he does. And that God is still at work today in every one of our lives, isn't he? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for tonight's service. 
If you would like to talk with someone about what you've heard, please visit our website at faith.ag or call us at 239-543-2700. If you're in the Fort Myers area and don't already have a church home, you're invited to join us for Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. We also gather on Sunday mornings at 8.15 and 10.45 a.m. Faith Assembly is located at 7101 Bayshore Road. Join us again next time for Wednesday night at Faith Assembly. Faith Assembly's Wednesday night is a production of Faith Assembly Media Tech, North Fort Myers, Florida.